Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And of course, also by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. For those who listen to the podcast regularly, you might notice that the audio is a little bit different this week. Actually, probably a lot different this week. I'm trying something out, so. I'm going to try just using the raw audio with a not compressed because I recently heard, at least with my new microphone, that the uncompressed audio is much clearer. Please, please, if you do listen to the podcast regularly, give me feedback on this episode if you like the audio level that it's at. I hope it's not too loud for people. Well, let's jump into the news. This week, Apple announced their new line of iPhones, iPads, and their new watch. Usually, there's a whole lot of hype around these events, but even the most diehard of Apple fans seem to find the announcements pretty uninspired. From a looks perspective, the iPhone 13 looks almost identical to the 12. The display, battery life, and camera have seen the biggest improvements, with the display now able to dynamically adjust from 10 megahertz to 120 megahertz. So there should really be a noticeable perceived performance boost from this change. It is pretty significant. The camera quality has always been good on the iPhone, and this one is no exception. They pitched that the video recording capabilities are now film studio quality, but in order to unlock the ProRes features and the highest quality of video recording, you must get an iPhone Pro or Max with more than 128 gigs of storage. No reason was given for why there's that requirement for a certain amount of storage. Don't know if it's because 4K video is going to take up a lot of space and they don't want people running out of storage quickly and then complaining about the product or if it's for some performance-related reason. It'd be nice if they answered that. For the battery, it increases by 1.5 hours for the Pro and and 2.5 hours for the Max. That's pretty impressive because they have said that the display, the Retina display, is now much brighter so you think a much brighter display would mean reduced battery life, but they managed to maintain a higher battery life and possibly because there's now a larger battery. The display itself also has greater real estate to work with too. I don't really know the terminology of phones that much, but essentially the little part in the middle, I think where like the front facing camera and a few components are at the top of the phone that's um, smaller and it's taking up less of the screen real estate. 
The iPad updates were even more underwhelming in my opinion, but having said that, the biggest update overall was the iPad mini, which hasn't seen an update in a while, so it is more a case of that has been brought into a more timely spec. So it's significant if you're into the iPad mini because that was lagging behind. So for example, it now supports USB-C. Interestingly, MKBHD, which one of the best tech YouTube channels and YouTubers, uh, Marquez is, check that out if you haven't seen it before. But he pointed out that the mini now has a superior processor to one of its perceived superiors. You would think the mini would not be on the more impressive spec scale and performance scale you think the larger ipads would but it's actually going to be more powerful from a processing standpoint than one of the larger ipads the watch doesn't really have that much play in enterprise but it did see a change to its design they've added these kind of curved edges on the display and a few other things too nothing really earth shattering there were announcements like for their fitness plus stuff but all in all this was just some iterative improvements to their line. There was nothing that jumped out as increasing enterprise use cases for the devices. They did show images and very brief demos or glimpses of demos with iPads and iPhones attached to medical devices and different maybe industrial devices. But that was more to highlight the fact that with the USB-C support for the iPad mini, that now makes it compatible with a lot of those enterprise devices. So not really anything new. I think Marquez and others have pointed out that if you have an iPhone 11 or an iPhone 12, there's probably not enough significant changes there to convince you to upgrade. If you're on a almost seven year old phone like me, then hey, maybe it is worth upgrading because it is an improvement on the 12, just not a hugely significant improvement. It wasn't all good news for Apple this week, as a day before the event, a major vulnerability was published that could directly infect iPhones, Macs, and Apple Watches without any user interaction required. Researchers at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab said the security issue was exploited to plant spyware on a Saudi activist iPhone. They said they had high confidence that the world's most infamous hacker for hire firm, Israel's NSO Group, was behind the attack. It has been indicated by NPR that the malicious code was discovered on September 7th and researchers immediately alerted Apple. It was also reported that the exploit was potentially being used to hack into activists and journalist phones as early as March with some Al Jazeera journalists targeted back then too. Although there was no code attained for those attacks on the Al Jazeera journalists, but people are maybe just jumping to the conclusion that this could be the same exploit that was used. The activist whose phone was analyzed by researchers said they received some image files via messages. These were not interacted with or opened, but it seems they didn't need to be in order for the code to run. Apple security chief Ivan Kristic commended Citizen Lab and said, such exploits are not a threat to the overwhelming majority of our users. And he noted, as he has in the past, that such exploits typically cost millions of dollars to develop and often have a short shelf life. Apple didn't respond to questions regarding whether this was the first time it had patched a zero-click vulnerability. So, <laughs> probably not, I guess, if they're not saying 
It was the first time. I mean, that response is downplaying it, and I can understand wanting to downplay it because, you know, you want to be able to sell your product and say that it's secure, but it is also kind of a weak response in my opinion. Now, I will say that I've been critical of Apple in the past because I think they're a little slow for turning around patches for vulnerabilities, or at least they have been um, many years ago. But if this was only disclosed to them on September 7th, and they've already got a patch out for this patch Tuesday, then good job Apple for getting that patch out there relatively quickly. And I think it goes without saying that if you have an Apple device, now is a really good time to patch if you haven't already. It was announced this week that Intuit, the creators of QuickBooks and owners of TurboTax software are to acquire MailChimp. The deal is reported to be worth $12 billion in cash and stock advances. I think MailChimp is a really awesome product. MailChimp is a service that I have leaned on quite heavily in the past for sending out email newsletters and I bet that others do too. It has a very simple nice design tool and makes a nice addition to Intuit's suite of products. And if I was into it, I'd probably be looking at SurveyMonkey next because I think MailChimp and SurveyMonkey kind of go hand in hand. At least that's been my experience. So congratulations to MailChimp and anyone who works there because you make an awesome product and you deserve this. LeapyComputer.com have reported that Microsoft says multiple threat actors, including ransomware affiliates, are targeting the recently patched Windows MS HTML remote code execution vulnerability that I covered on the podcast before, which is labeled as CVE-2021-4044. It was reported at least at the time of this recording that the attacks have hit less than 10 targets, but obviously this is one you'll want to patch, patch, patch as quick as possible. And speaking of patching, another patch Tuesday just passed. This month brought 86 fixes, which is still relatively low, particularly considering only 60 of those are for products other than Edge. Of the 86 vulnerabilities, 27 were for elevation of privilege vulnerabilities, 2 were security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 16 remote code execution, 11 information disclosure, 1 denial of service, and 8 spoofing vulnerabilities. Two of the vulnerabilities are reported to be zero days, which does include the vulnerability I just mentioned in the previous story for the MSHTML remote code execution, but there's also a Windows DNS elevation of privilege vulnerability, which is CVE-2021-36968, and it looks like it appears to only affect Windows 7 and Server 2008 and R2, and there wasn't really much in the way of description in the CVE article, so I wonder if more information will be provided later. An early word of warning, Bleepy Computer reports that multiple forum posts suggested that KB5005565 is causing printing problems on Windows 10, and it's breaking network printing altogether from those devices. USB connected printing still appears to work, but obviously in an enterprise, that isn't going to be much good. I'm sure that story will develop more between now and when I record next week's episode, so you can probably expect a follow-up, as well as a follow-up on any other patch-related issues that might come up when people are deploying these patches. 
Citrix published CTX329443 about an issue where launching multiple virtual apps and virtual desktops using Citrix Workspace app for Mac is failing on macOS Big Sur version 11.6. So this is only when launching multiple. So launching multiple apps or multiple desktops. A single instance works just fine. The current workaround is not pretty. You are instructed to change some of the advanced settings to download the ICA files and then manually launch them. Or at least that's my interpretation of it. And speaking of Citrix, this week Bloomberg highlighted that one of the biggest losers on the S&P 500 in what they called the pandemic bottom was Citrix. And they suggest that that is surprising based on the fact that, you know, Citrix is very relevant to work from home. The report suggests Citrix declined by about 10%, but it also states it increased by 3% just this Wednesday after Paul Singer of Elliott Investment Management encouraged changes to be made by the Citrix management. The simple fact that he revealed himself as an investor with a 10% stake was enough to push up the price and I guess get other people interested in investing. I saw some tweets suggesting this was due to the products themselves being inferior for demands of supporting fast, agile, remote work requirements of today, which personally I think is bunyuk, which <laughs> it's a Irish term for something that's a curse word. <laughs> I don't think the tech is at fault and many of Citrix products are still best in class in my opinion. As someone who would have to use published apps and virtual desktops while working remotely as a user, I think they still provide a really superior and excellent experience. And as someone who recently managed and maintained Citrix environments as like an admin engineer architect, I would still choose Citrix virtual apps and desktop over the competition in that regard too. The likely factors in the poor performance are probably due to the current business model for Citrix and how they sell their products. And that's just my opinion. That wasn't in this article that I'm reading. It's just an observation. This has now reignited rumors that Citrix is preparing to sell. And I saw that there's been some suggestions that they've been meeting with advisors on how to prepare and find a buyer, I guess. but. This isn't the first time that has been reported that they've met with advisors and they're preparing to sell. It's been rumored for many, many years. Eventually, I assume it will be true, but there's no real evidence to suggest that such a claim and rumor now is any more true today than in previous years when it didn't happen. So don't be surprised if it doesn't happen. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it does happen either, but I wouldn't waste too much energy and go out talking to people using Citrix and, hey, what are you going to do with Citrix in the future when they get acquired? Because I don't think it's any more likely today than it has been in the past. Microsoft this week announced that Azure Active Directory join for VMs and Azure Virtual Desktop is now generally available. And this to me is one of the most critical features in Azure Virtual Desktop. No more site-to-site -site VPN and on-prem or Azure hosted Active Directory services are required to use the service now. So congratulations to the AVD team. I think this is a huge milestone. 
And another significant announcement in terms of potential customer base and growth for AVD is the fact that AVD is now available in the Azure China Cloud. On a previous episode of the podcast, I covered the evolution of OneDrive. Well, it has now debuted as a progressive web app, and what this means is it should work on Edge and Chrome, and as it's a PWA as they call them, it won't require connectivity even though it is that kind of web app. And it is stated that the PWA version can still run on startup of the machine, so it sounds like for the most part, it will function just like the regular OneDrive client, but is obviously this kind of containerized progressive web app. I wonder if this will be a bridge for non-Windows operating systems going forward. Finally, applications are open for the CTP and CTA classes of 2022. So if you're a Citrix expert and you fancy joining two really awesome programs, be sure to apply. And now, some weekly webinars. First up, I've already promoted on a previous episode of the podcast, but the virtual expo is coming up. It's going to take place on the 24th of this month, and it's going to have a lot of really great sessions. And it's not just like vendor sessions either. There's a whole lot of community sessions on things like troubleshooting with Procmon. I know Trent and Ty is doing that. I think I saw that Owen Reynolds is doing a kind of basic, or not basic, but an actual troubleshooting session without using paid tools, which should be really interesting. I'm sure it's going to use Procmon and maybe some other tools that you might not know about. Um, I'm going to be talking about application packaging and delivery, and there's a whole lot of other really great sessions that you can catch. And also, quick congratulations to ControlUp on being recognized by Forrester and Gartner recently in the digital employee experience management space. On September 22nd, ControlUp and Forrester will be holding a joint webinar and you can learn how the ControlUp DEX platform can help you realize results with details on some of the results, like really staggering advancements and cost savings from some of the customer case studies that will be shared, and basically how you can get those same cost savings and just all around better digital employee experience for your workers. And I'll share a link to registration for both of those webinars as I do with everything I talk about in this podcast at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 194. And now some scripts, tricks, and tips. I saw it pointed out by a community member, and I'm sorry I don't remember who it was, but he pointed out that you can avail of a free 365 E5 license as a developer. I didn't know this and it is actually pretty timely for me. So for Cloud PC, I signed up for a trial of E5 in order to be able to authorize Intune as my MDM authority for managing the desktop with Microsoft Endpoint Manager. But that trial will expire, so I hope maybe this can take over for that trial license and I'll be able to continue to use MEM for managing the desktop with my licensing. And I saw a really great blog post this week on CUGC about scaling and load balancing session recording. Session recording is kind of back in vogue with so much remote work and increased demand for VDI and published applications. So I figured this is worth highlighting, despite the fact the article was published back in 2019. 
It appears to be a collaborative effort by both Hal Lang and Ryan Reverd, so thanks guys for that awesome blog post. And the excellent Tim Mangan posted a blog on automating MSIX repackaging with the PSF, which I believe is Package Support Framework. I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's a Package Support Framework, which to me is a very kind of developer-focused tool for fixing some of the more common issues that you might encounter when packaging with MSIX. It's not very IT pro friendly, but Tim has some tools that are more IT pro friendly and can help you get up to that maybe like 60% compatibility rate that Tim's able to achieve with MSIX. And in this blog post, he talks about automating some of that repackaging too. So very cool stuff. GoEUC, we're back with some in-depth performance analysis of Windows 11 on VDI. The GoEUC guys have been pretty active in the last few weeks, which is great to see. And it's very cool before Windows 11 even becomes generally available. They've got some really interesting metrics on performance on VDI, which is going to be very timely too. James Kinden posted a really detailed blog around Citrix UPM and FSLogix containers and makes a really good argument for each in certain circumstances. So I know a lot of people when FSLogix profile containers were made available to pretty much anyone with the Microsoft Enterprise Agreement, they're like, oh, well, why would you use UPM? Let's just all go all in on FSLogix profile containers. But James actually makes a really good argument for using UPM in certain circumstances. So check out that blog post for more. And finally, I didn't promote this one when I initially created it and shared it on my GitHub repository because I got some really great feedback for a couple of tools that I created from Guy Leach and I had the best of intentions to take his advice on board and make some changes to the code. Now Guy, to his credit, he's a really awesome mentor for this because he was like, you know, you don't have to make these changes. You know, you could just publish it as it is and use it as it is because if it works, it works. But he gave some really great lengthy <laughs> feedback on my code, on ways to improve it. But unfortunately, I just haven't had the time to make those changes. So this tool is out there. If I take early retirement and win the lottery, I might go back and make the changes. For now, I'm not going to make the changes anytime soon. But if you'd like to try out this tool, it is a Citrix remote PC tool that provides a nice little... GUI interface. It's a PowerShell script, but it presents a GUI interface. And you're able to look up PCs by hostname and add users to assign them to a PC. Or if there are assigned users already, you're able to remove them. So one of the challenges that at least I found was like field text might retire someone's laptop or PC or whatever and replace it, but they don't do the cleanup. They don't unassign them from the machine so they might get a new PC that they're able to remote into, but their icon for the old PC in storefront still appears, even though that machine has been retired. Part of the reason they don't do it is because maybe they have restricted access and can't get into Citrix Studio to do what they need to do to clean that up, or possibly it's just too cumbersome and too much work to get into Studio. Not everyone publishes Studio as an app either with like app V or something. So maybe they don't have access to the actual delivery controllers in order to use Studio or not have it on a machine of some kind. 
So with this tool, they're able to do whatever they need to do to assign and unassign users to remote PCs and hopefully keep things relatively clean. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening.